we skipped over a little bit. And the first little bit is the angel Gabriel is sent to Zechariah. And Zechariah, he's in the temple. He's doing his temple duties. Angel shows up. And he's terrified because an angel shows up. And you're supposed to be terrified when angels show up. By the way, let me ask you this question. This is a fun interactive point, okay? Um, So you're actually supposed to respond. If you were going to describe, if you're going to use a word to describe what it sounded like if an angel showed up, what would that word be? You know, you know, like in the, in the Batman comics, pow! <laughs> Probably not that sound, but what would be the word that you use to describe an angel showing up? Whoa? Whoa? <laughs> I don't know if that's a sound that can be made, but whoa, okay, that's fair. Gabby, Gabby had one. Yeah, whoosh. I don't understand where the whoosh came from. I guess. We've got a little, a little Christmas book for the girls, and it does this a couple of times where, and the angel showed up. Whoosh! I have never heard anything ever make the sound whoosh when they came into the room. I don't know where that came from. But whether it's a whoosh or a pow or a woe, whatever it may be, it's a shocking thing to all of a sudden have an angel standing before you. So Zechariah, he, he does his temple business. He engages in conversation with an angel, and then the angel disappears. Then we come to Mary, and we're told this is sometime after Zechariah has had his encounter with the angel, because it's at least six months later, because Elizabeth is in her pregnancy. Six months. Solid pregnancy. Typically, even though within the first century there was still no guarantees when it came to pregnancy and giving birth, by all accounts, there's, this is real. And what we're told is that she's in her sixth month, and that's a good thing. That the word of God that was spoken to Zechariah has come true, and it's being fulfilled at this moment. God sends the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, which Nazareth, we all know Nazareth as the place where Mary and Joseph lived. Joseph was the carpenter from Nazareth. But Nazareth really had nothing important. Bethlehem at least had the city of David title. Nazareth was really just boring. I mean, as much as cities can be exciting or boring, there was nothing really exciting about Nazareth. In Galilee, surrounded by Gentiles, they were actually viewed from the rest of the Jewish culture as just kind of like a lackadaisical, ho-hum, meh kind of people. They were really just... They, they weren't all that exciting. They weren't irreligious. They weren't heretics. They weren't pagans. But they, they weren't super religious, like those in Jerusalem or perhaps Bethlehem would be. They were just, blah. Like, that's, that's actually, I was trying to summarize all the commentaries and all they were talking about Nazareth, and the one word I came up with was just, blah. Like, they were just, they just were. There was nothing exciting. In fact, one of the disciples, after being told that Jesus, the one from Nazareth, he does some pretty incredible things, and we're pretty sure he might be the Messiah. One of the disciples say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Maybe a toss-away phrase that we go, well, that's kind of insulting, but it was just true. Nazareth wasn't all that exciting. There was nothing that great. But God sends an angel to Nazareth specifically, to a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. Now, the word virgin is mentioned a couple of times, and when we hear repetition in Scripture, you're meant to pay attention. A virgin betrothed to Joseph, 
The virgin's name was Mary, and Mary, even in her question that we get later on the passage, she says, how can this be for I am a virgin? So what are you supposed to understand about Mary? She's a virgin, which we all get, right? We've heard this story before, but shocking. Another woe factor, Lalo, (laughs) that we can throw in there. Woe. So we're getting this theme of God creating life, God bringing life into humans, creating life out of what was once dead, which by all accounts, uh, Elizabeth's womb is reproductively dead, bringing life out of death. We're getting a picture of what God can do. He's doing the incredible and creating life in ways that we, we aren't quite used to. We're not quite used to seeing it done this way. And she's pledged to be married. Another phrase that's not just thrown in there for fun. Betrothal in the first century was, it was marriage without the benefits. Can I say that? It was marriage without any of the benefits that come from marriage because she's still a virgin, right? But legally, she is bound to Joseph and Joseph is bound to her to the point where if Mary, or sorry, if Joseph were to die, she would be considered a widow. They are legally bound together. So, the fact that they are betrothed is not just, oh, that's cute, they had a wedding shower. No, they, they are legally bound together because of this, um, of the way that betrothal and marriage actually work in the first century. So being bound together is actually very important because as we find out who is Joseph, well, he's a descendant of David. And that's very, very significant as we get on through the passage. Descendant of David. And then we get to the greeting. And the greeting, after the whoosh, okay, angel shows up and says, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. So, naturally, you should be shocked. You should be terrified. Zechariah is actually, he's afraid. We get to the shepherds in chapter 2, and we're actually told explicitly that they're terrified, which when you're sleeping, and there's sheep, and you're out in the middle of nowhere, and then a bright angel shows up, that's maybe a little bit more terrifying than Zechariah's experience in the temple where you might expect spiritual and angelic beings to be. So, we'll give the shepherds a little bit more of a break because... There wouldn't have been an angel there anyways, but they're terrified. And angels are terrifying. In Scripture, excitement doesn't follow the appearance of an angel. It's not like, oh goody, this is really cool. It, 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 it is terrifying. You think of the, the, the description of the first angel that we hear of in Scripture in Genesis chapter 3. The Lord casts out Adam and Eve from the garden and what is standing there guarding the, the entrance back in? It's an angel. It's a cherub. Two of them, actually, cherubim. And, and what are they holding? What are they holding? Fiery swords, flaming swords. Death is in their hands. Angels are terrifying beings. Which tells us something about our current culture and how we, we really get it all wrong. We dress up the kids in the nice little white robes with the little halos. And the kids are cute, okay? I'm not saying the kids aren't cute. I'm not saying we shouldn't dress up the kids like that. But that's not exactly what they looked like. And you know Clarence? Does anybody know the name Clarence? It's a Wonderful Life. That is a terrible representation of angels. 
right? Clarence is kind of this bumbling little fool of an angel who's just trying to help Jimmy Stewart's character. What's his name? George, thank you. He's just trying to help George figure out, you know, it really is a wonderful life. You've impacted so many people. Don't, don't be so despairing about who you are and how things have gone. But Clarence isn't a good representation of what an angel is. It should also tell us something about people who claim to have angelic counters and then just want to brag about it, want to tell you how exciting it was, how neat it was. I'm not saying people don't meet angels. We even have scripture passages that tell us, be hospitable to everyone because some of you have, you've hosted angels without knowing it. So I'm not saying we don't meet angels, but perhaps our 21st century idea of what angels are needs to be reworked into the biblical format because when an angel does show up and makes his presence known, there's an audible woe, a whoosh. But that's not what makes Mary troubled. That's not what she's wondering about. What is Mary wondering about? It's in the text, in verse 29. She's not worried about his presence. Mary was greatly troubled at his words. Not at him being there, which there's a handful of things in this passage which tell me I, I couldn't have been in Mary's position because I would have been asking all of the wrong questions. And I would have been worried about all of the wrong things because Mary does none of the things that I would be worried about. And she doesn't ask any of the questions that I would ask. An angel shows up, says, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And she starts worrying about that. What is there to worry about? You've just been told that the Lord is with you and that you're highly favored. Why are you worried? Why are you upset? Why are you troubled? Why are you wondering? Why are you thinking about that? Which maybe, maybe this tells us something about the fact that we don't think about the Word of God enough. Because she gets seemingly such a simple greeting from God through the angel Gabriel, and she doesn't just go, okay, cool. She goes, what could this mean? Something's happening. One, angels don't normally show up. Okay, that, that's new. Haven't had that happen before. But this greeting, what could this greeting mean? What is this angel communicating to me from God by using these words? To be highly favored is to have God's grace put upon you, to be a recipient of God's grace. So you are, who are highly favored, Mary, you are highly favored in the Lord's sight. You have received God's grace. The Lord is with you. And this phrase is something that, I love Star Wars, but it's ruined so many things, and we don't need to talk about the movies, but Star Wars What's the one phrase in Star Wars that they're always saying to each other? May the force be with you. That's not this. The Lord is with you is not a phrase like the force be with you, where it's just kind of like a thrown out there phrase. We're not quite sure exactly what the force is or exactly what the force is with you and what that's going to do and how that's going to help you. And in fact, Obi-Wan says, may the force be with you to Anakin, and then he goes out and becomes Darth Vader. So, What does that exactly mean, the force be with you? The phrase, the Lord is with you, is nothing like that. It's a phrase that's used in Scripture to actually prepare an individual for a task that God is about to give them. So, an angel shows up to Gideon in the Old Testament. Another terrifying event. 
that he was terrified at, and the angel said, the Lord is with you. In preparation for Gideon, God's got something for you to do. But don't worry, don't forget, the Lord is going with you. You're not in this task by yourself. You're not going at it by yourself. So Mary, you are highly favored. You've received God's grace, and the Lord is with you in the task you are about to receive. So naturally, she wonders, what does this mean? What are you talking about? Because... Mary is just a teenage virgin, right? Like She's from a town that has nothing exciting in it. She's married to a guy who's the carpenter in the town. And we're not even told exactly who her family is, where she comes from, or what she does. Like, we're not told that she could sew fabric, that she was really good at baking, that... She could do pottery. We know nothing about her. And maybe that's on purpose. Because the focus isn't on who she was and all the things that are bound up in her past. But the important part of who Mary is is that she's received God's grace and the most significant thing about her is about what God's about to do in her. That's the most significant and important thing. What could this mean? What kind of greeting is this? So we get the answer in uh, verse 31. Well, in verse 30, the angel says, do not be afraid. There's a good thing. But we're actually not told that she's afraid. Perhaps we could infer that she is by being troubled and wondering what's going on. But we're not told that she's terrified like the shepherds were or like Zechariah was. But still the same greeting. Maybe it's just a standard angel greeting. When an angel shows up, he knows people are going to be terrified. So he says, don't be afraid. Maybe that's just the standard. You show up, whoosh, don't be afraid. It's okay. Settle down. We're all good. Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Another repetition of something which we're supposed to get and understand. Mary is favored by God. She has found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we're not told why yet until verse 31. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. The reason Mary has found favor in the eyes of God is because of what God is going to do in her. Not on the basis of who she is or what she's done. Not on the basis of her skills and her talents and what she brings to the table. The grace that she has received from God and the favor that she finds in his eyes is on the basis of what God is going to do in her. And this son, starting in verse 32, he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, there's so much jam-packed in here. We think of the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7. David, you wanted to build me a house? No, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house, not not a physical building. I'm going to build you a household, a dynasty. I'm going to build for you something that you couldn't even imagine. I'm going to give you a kingdom that will never end. You will always have a son reigning on your throne. And the only two possible ways for that to happen is for David to continually have son after son after son after son, descendant after descendant, or you get to one individual who never dies. His kingdom will never end. This individual who is about to be born will never die. His kingdom will never end. 
he will always reign on the throne of his father David. This is where we get the significance of Mary being legally bound, legally tied to Joseph, because Joseph's the descendant of David. And yet, according to first century eyes, Mary is just as much a part of that family as anyone else could be. So her son is bound to the descendants of David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. John, as we were told earlier in chapter 1, he is a prophet of the Most High. This is the son of the Most High God. We get to Mary's question in verse 34. And I want to say that Mary's asking the wrong question. We all know the question, how can this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. I partially want to say it's the wrong question because of what just came before. Don't you have some questions to the angel about what this kingdom, this never-ending kingdom is? Don't you have some questions about how the Son of the Most High God is going to be in you? Don't you have some questions about how that's, what the theological implications of all these things are? She doesn't even ask, why me? Which is what many people in the Bible actually do. Some of them don't just ask, why me? They say, no, not me. I'm not good at this. You think of Moses, right? Oh, Lord, I'm not very good at talking. You better get somebody else. He talks pretty smooth towards God, trying to get his way out of it, but then uses his smooth tongue as an excuse as not being that smooth. She doesn't ask the right questions if I'm Mary. I'm asking a thousand different questions if I'm in her position. This son, she has just been told, has a messianic destiny. It's rooted in his sonship, in his relationship to God. This baby that she will be carrying is God's son. He is the Messiah, the promised Savior of the world. That is what she has just been told. And her question is, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Now, the second reason I want to say it's the wrong question is because, Mary, you're betrothed to a dude. Like, you're, you're going to get married. You're going to do things. Couldn't you just have a baby that way? Like, why, why is your question, I'm a virgin, how can this be, instead of, well, when do you want this to happen? it seems like she has some sort of idea that this is going to happen now. That there's something happening right now, that the Lord's doing something right now. And so she's got some questions about, Lord, practically, how are you going to do this? Now notice the difference between her question and Zechariah's question earlier in the chapter. See, Zechariah, he's rebuked, right? What happens to Zechariah? He, yeah, he's, he's, he can't talk. Zechariah goes, how can I be sure of this? Mary's question is altogether entirely different. She still asks how, but she asks, how can this be? How is this going to happen? How are you going to do this? Not how can I be sure. Zechariah's problem was not trusting the word of God. Mary's problem is not a matter of trust towards God. It's a matter of, I'm not sure I get it, Lord. Not quite sure. I mean, I know you created us and you know, you can do things however you want, but typically, there's an order of how babies are born. How are you going to do this? 
And she's not rebuked. She's not scolded. Because Zechariah, who's been serving in the temple for decades, he should know better, right? And he should also know that this is what he's been asking the Lord for. He's been asking for a child. The angel shows up and says, Zechariah, don't be afraid. Your prayers have been heard. Zechariah's been asking for this. Then when the angel of the Lord shows up and says, this is going to happen, all of a sudden he just goes, well, how can I be sure? Well, you've been asking the God of the universe for something, and now you're doubting his word. You're doubting whether he's actually going to do what he has said he's going to do. That doesn't happen with Mary. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. Remember, we know that part of the story, right? We've read the first couple of verses of chapter 1. Mary, presumably, has no idea. She has no clue that Elizabeth is pregnant. That's a very important part of the Christmas story for us, but this is news to her. Your relative is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Elizabeth is in her sixth month. Mary, you may be worried about how God's going to do this. You may be worried about the logistics of how you're going to have a child growing within you and still being a virgin. But let me tell you, God can create life out of death. And if God can create life out of a reproductively dead womb, he can create life in your live, lively, live womb. Mary, Elizabeth is at the end of her baby-rearing days. You're just at the beginning. And look, if God can do this, you don't need to worry. He can do this. He can create life in your womb. It's almost like Mary's question, how can this be, for I'm a virgin? It's almost like, Lord, if you tell me how this is going to work, I'll take the whole package. Like, you tell me how this can be true, how I can be pregnant as a virgin. You tell me what this means, how this is going to work. You just explain this one little detail. You explain this one thing, I'll accept the whole package. Son of the Most High, ruling over Jacob's descendants forever, always sitting on the throne. Those are all my questions. Mary, in some sense, I don't know if she's just smarter, wiser, or she just understands the message better, but she goes, okay, here are all of these big, important messianic things. If God can create life in my womb, of course the other part's going to be true. Of course I can trust God. Of course I can put my faith in him. Which is exactly what she does. The angel ends his message with, no word from God will ever fail. And Mary's response is, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel leaves. She trusts God at his word. She's just received, perhaps, and I don't, we can debate this, perhaps the most astounding news you could ever receive as a early to mid-teenage girl, right? 
Like, could, could there be any more shocking news to a 15-year-old girl? <laughs> could there be anything more shocking than an angel showing up, whoosh, don't be afraid, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. This is perhaps the most earth-shattering, Instagram-worthy thing possible, right? Like, hold on, Gabe, let me get a Snapchat of this, okay? Nobody's going to believe me, right? This is the most astounding thing that has ever happened. And she says, I am the Lord's servant. She doesn't ask any more questions. She says, how can this be? Something doesn't quite make sense. Not, how can I be sure? Can I really trust you? Just, how is this going to work? The angel explains, not rebuking her, and she goes, okay, I'm in. Which we don't even get that in the adventure movies, right? You usually have to pick and claw, and, you know, the hero in the movie usually has to get dragged into it. Like, they don't actually want to be a part of what's going on. Mary, right off the get-go, I'm in, Lord. Let me, know, let me know what to do. May it be to me as you have said. May your word to me be fulfilled. Trust is something that we, we don't have in society anymore. Or maybe we haven't had ever really since the Garden of Eden, right? And that ultimately was the first sin in a nutshell, right? Not trusting the word of God, but trusting the word of Satan, yes, but trusting ourselves, trusting our words, trusting what we have to say over and above what God has said. We put locks on our doors. We've got lawyers to make sure that all the paperwork is drawn up right because we can't trust one another. We can't trust that what you say is going to be true. We can't trust that what you've said you're going to do, you're going to do. If it's not in writing, you can get out of it. Nobody's word means anything anymore. You can't just say, I will do this and have people trust you, even if you believe yourself to be trustworthy. Our society just doesn't, doesn't run that way. It doesn't work that way. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't put locks on our doors. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have lawyers. But it is an earth-shattering thing to have this young girl say, okay, I believe you. That should be shocking to us. We're shocked by the virgin birth, of course, but we should be shocked at this young girl's willingness to just believe God at his word. She didn't ask a ton of questions. She didn't try to get out of it. She said, okay, Lord, I believe you. This type of response that she gives, it's not the final do it. I used to give that to my parents all the time, right? Fine, I'll go shovel the driveway. I don't know why we're shoveling it now. It's still snowing. It's going to snow, and then we're going to have to do it again. But fine, I'll do it. It's not like Jonah's response either. If we read Jonah chapter 2 carefully, that's Jonah's prayer while he's in the belly of the fish or the whale. Who thinks it was a fish? Who thinks it was a whale? I think it was a whale. You can ask me why later. Jonah's response, Jonah's prayer is really, if we read it carefully... It's really Jonah crying uncle. It's really him going, fine, Lord. You get me out of this, I'll do what you want. Jonah didn't drown. He was in the belly of a fish or a whale, whatever it was, which is terrible. It stinks. He's only eating the scraps of whatever this giant aquatic animal is eating. And he's trying to not drown himself. And he says, fine, Lord. Get me out of this, and I'll do what you want. 
And then he does what God wants, but he does it in the worst possible way. This isn't Mary's response. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. She trusts God himself. She trusts God at his word. She doesn't trust in the things that God has given her. Which as of right now, she doesn't have very much. She's living in a ho-hum town betrothed to the carpenter of the village. She doesn't really have much to show for it that we know of. She trusts God at his word. She trusts her king. The other thing we're not told about Mary is how much, I'm going to use this phrase, theological training she had. How much did she actually know? Did she recognize that the phrase, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus, that that's almost a word-for-word exact representation of Isaiah 7, 14? The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Emmanuel? Does she know all of that? Does she recognize all of that? Does she get all of the theological implications? We don't know. What we are told is that she wonders. She thinks about the things that God is telling her. And we're actually told later that when the shepherds show up, and then again when the wise men show up, what is Mary doing while all of this is going on? Tell me, what is she doing? Kathy, I I saw you mouth it. She ponders these things in her heart. She's continually thinking about what is going on, about what God is doing. She's not content to just sit back and just let things go. Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing in me? What are you doing in my son? We don't know how much she understood, but we do know that she fully, wholeheartedly trusted God. Do you trust God this morning? Have you put your faith and trust in him? Do you trust God at his word that Jesus is who the angel says he is? Do you trust God for the salvation of your soul? Do you trust him that the son that he sent was born with a purpose to go to the cross and die, to have nails put in his hands, to bear the sin and punishment for you and for me? Do you trust God at his word? Any of you know the name the Great Blondin? Anybody ever heard the Great Blondin? He was, he was a tightrope walker. He was a trapeze kind of guy back in the 1800s. I think he was a French guy. Blondin? I don't know if that's a French name. I think his first name was like Jean-Luc, so that's why I'm thinking he was French. Um, the Great Blondin. Now, he was known famously for walking across the Niagara Falls. So he'd stretch a tightrope. And this is back in the 1800s, too. So he had a tightrope from one end to the other, and I don't know exactly where it was, but he would, you know, walk across this 100, 150-foot span across the falls. And he would do all these incredible things where he'd take a wheelchair, uh, wheelchair, a wheelbarrow, and he'd fill it with bricks, and he'd go across, and he'd unload the bricks on the other side, and then he'd walk back, and he's all on this tightrope thing, and then they'd, you know, he'd put stuff in it and take it back into the middle. He even took, like, a little cooking pot And he somehow balanced that in the middle, like over top the falls, and he's balancing this thing in the middle, and he's frying up bacon and eggs. It was a great spectacle. Like, people came out to watch what the great Blondin would do on this tightrope. And he would go out, and he'd spin, and he could ride his bicycle back and forth, and he would do all these incredible things. I don't know how much of this story has been fantasized by 
people, but as far as I can tell, there was one instance where he's using the wheelbarrow and he's doing all of these incredible things. He says, how many of you think I can take 20 bricks? Yay, everybody cheers. Of course you can. You can do anything. We've seen you do all of this stuff. We can see, we've seen what you can do. We have no doubt that you can do this. Who thinks I can take 40 bricks across? Yeah, you can do it. Woohoo! Who thinks I can take a man across? Yeah, of course you can. All right, who will get in? <laughs> there was a whoosh. Dead silence. Because all of a sudden, when they had to put their money where their mouth was, they weren't so sure whether they trusted him or not. And then a little boy stuck up his hand. I'll do it. I'll get in the wheelbarrow. And everybody's kind of like, uh, whose kid is this? Should we stop him? Like, are we allowed to just let this happen? So the kid climbs into the wheelbarrow. And the great blondin takes off and he goes across. And do-do-do-do-do. I have no idea what the kid was doing. Is he looking over the side? Is he waving back at people? So he's in this wheelbarrow, he goes across, and everybody cheers, yeah! And then they turn around and they come back. And what was astounding is that when he gets off, all of the reporters, all of the people there don't rush to the great blonde and they rush to the kid. And they go, oh my goodness, why in the world would you get in? Why would you do that? Why, what made you think that you should get into this wheelbarrow? And the little kid looks up and he goes, because that's my dad. The Blondin had eight children. And apparently one of his kids was in the crowd that day. And he goes, oh yeah, of course. I trust my dad completely. I'll get in. I'll get in that wheelbarrow. I have no doubt that he's going to not drop me. <laughs> do we trust God like that? Sometimes we say that we do. We're like the crowd that cheers. Who, can, who thinks I can take a man across? Of course you can! But then, when we're faced with those situations, when we're faced with those tasks, when we're faced with those things that we maybe don't understand, because I think it would be hard to argue that Mary fully understood everything that was going to be happening in her. She trusted God, and so should we. See, the promise that was given to Mary, you will have the Son of God growing inside of you. You will have God himself dwelling within you. That promise is for us too. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and God himself will come and live inside of you. He will give you a new power, a new strength, a new ability to stand up against sin to defeat so many things in this world. The promise to Mary is the first among many. Put your faith and trust in God and have God dwell within you, living inside of you. You don't have to understand it all. You don't have to have a 100% grasp of what God is doing, but do you trust him? Do you trust him completely? Not with a few bricks, but with your whole self, with your whole body. Will you get into that wheelbarrow of trust with God this week? Will you ask God to help you to trust him more? Will you do that this Christmas season as we, we do all of the good things, not to put our trust and faith and hope in the things that we have or the things that we get, but in God himself and who he is and what he has said in his promises? May God help us to do that. I'm going to ask the music team to come up and lead us in our closing song.